Hello, and welcome to She Speaks 2, the podcast where we share the stories of African Americans who have made an impact in their communities from the South Carolina Low Country and beyond. I am your host, Patricia Blygen Jones. Join us on She Speaks 2. Good afternoon, Dr. Millicent Brown. How are you? Doing fine today. Thank you so much and welcome to She Speaks to the podcast. Dr. Brown, let's get started with just a little bit of background about who you are, uh, what you do, what you have done. Take us down memory lane. (laughs) Um, I'll be glad to. Um, I don't like talking about myself that much, but for today's conversation, I want your listeners to have a a little bit of a sense of um, why you're even bothering with me today. (laughs) Um, I am a native Charlestonian. Um, I was born into a family um, um, here in Charleston that was before my birth, already very deeply involved in civil rights activism. My father, J. Arthur Brown, um, assisted and supported by my mother, Maydee Myers Brown, um, uh, introduced my sisters and me to the struggle. Um, I always let people know that um, I take very little credit for two of the most important things that affected my entire life. That is to whom I was born, because Mm -hmm. we have no control over that. And in my case, I just feel fortunate that I had parents who were so engaged in um, uplift and, and civic engagement. So to whom I was born was not of my making, but also when I was born. I was born right in the middle of the 20th century, uh, 1948 to be exact. But the point is, so much was going on at that time. So as I grew up in my early experiences, my commitment to um, equality and and justice and fighting against segregation, fighting against inequality. Um, A lot of that is not about Millicent Brown. A lot of that is what was I exposed to even from a very early age? And I say that with great humility because those two factors affect everybody. And I don't know that we spend enough time sometimes realizing that it wasn't always about you. (laughs) It was, you know, how were you raised? Who were you raised around? And what was going on at the time? And for me, my father was, ever since I was, um, that I can remember, um, was the local president of the NAACP chapter in Charleston. We grew up in downtown Charleston, my two older sisters and and me. And um, that meant I grew up exposed to people and ideas that I really treasure the older I get, the more I realize how unique those experiences were. Um, My father was a graduate of South Carolina State. Um, So was my mother. Um, She was from Orangeburg, but they met in college and then they came back to Charleston and he had a real estate business. But there's the backstory to that. My father, I'm sure after college, he had one or two regular jobs, but he was able to um, establish his independent real estate business because his father, um, who had a, a third grade education, was a contractor and um, had bought up many pieces of property. And so my father had the 
unique but important opportunity to be self-employed. And I want to raise that issue with you very early because that's important for people to understand. Why would Joe Brown have been out there, out front with people like John Chisholm, people like Herbert Fielding, Esau Jenkins, um, and so many, many others, um, some of the black ministers who we'll talk about later. But my point is, I grew up in a family family that was fortunate enough to have a sense of independence, financial independence. Therefore, my father could be out front. He could be out there orchestrating um, uh, voter registration campaigns. You know, he could be out there, not alone now, but with others like him. But the point that we must understand is What gave him the ability to do that and to be outspoken? Well, there wasn't some white man over his head that could fire him. And that is so much a part of when we look back in Charleston, and this is true for any community, but especially in Charleston, that that is how we begin to see who stepped forward and who did not and to understand where our leadership came from. The people like uh, Delbert Woods, who worked for the federal government, his wife, uh, Thelma Woods, she was the postmistress at the post office right on Ashley Avenue. Um, But they were federal employees. And so they had a little bit more leeway Um, John Chisholm, who is known today, uh, the the voter registration office in North Charleston Mm -hmm. is named for him. Right. You know, well, John Chisholm, yeah, John Chisholm was my father's business partner. Um, They had an office right next to our house called Brown and Chisholm. My father dealt with real estate and um, John dealt with insurance. Okay. But... But they were able to do that because they had um, income sources that um, gave them that luxury. Um, you, There is a story that you may have already heard about um, Mrs. Septima Clark and the fact that when she, in the, the, the earliest part of the 20th century, was advocating for equality in black schools, better salaries, equal salaries for black teachers. You know, um, she was challenged and um, was actually fired because she admitted that she belonged to the NAACP. So she is a, a, a good example of the times in which we live, that if you spoke up, you really could be fired Fired. from your job. And so if we look back on those leaders, we have to understand why some people were, were, were empowered and why others were not. Mrs. Clark is an example of someone who Yes, she suffered the consequences, but she was so clear about what she believed about black rights, voting rights, economic rights, you know, the injustice that we were living under and, and were continuing to live under throughout our entire history. She was so committed that she didn't look back. You know, she didn't say, oh, my gosh, I got fired. I better keep my mouth shut. She then went on a trajectory with her life that took her to places sometimes outside of South Carolina. But she worked with organizations that um, were able to support her. Um, And 
that that came at a great cost. But, you know, Pat, one of the things that we have to understand about folks that commit to working for against injustice is you get this stuff in your blood. Yes. You know, it becomes a part of who you are. Yes. And so, yeah, you, you, you decide, you know something, there's no turning back. And again, I, I credit that I was surrounded by people like that. And so both my sisters and, 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 and I, we just, I don't know. I, I don't like us to sound like we're so special, but we caught that fire and um, it, 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 it's, it's lifelong. And we won't compromise because we had folks around us who showed us that uh -uh, when times get tough, you don't just all of a sudden shut your mouth. You know, you actually keep going. Yeah. Yeah. You have to speak up and speak out for those who cannot. And, and it's something, like I said, that gets into being a part of who you are. Um, let me throw in that when I credit the folks that I was exposed to um, from very early childhood all the way up through today, I think about folks that aren't talked about as much. You do hear more about Mrs. Clark. Um, she became particularly famous um not only after having lost her job, but when she worked with SCLC with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, uh, she was asked to accompany him when he received the Nobel Peace Prize. And so a lot of people found out about Septima Clark because of her work with him. Um, But then more and more people more recently are understanding about Esau Jenkins, a man with very little formal education from Johns Island, but somebody who understood that people needed to be encouraged to participate. You cannot live in a segregated, unjust world and say nothing. You can't. So Mr. Esau was one of those people, but he was such a visionary. He said, this is, there are all kinds of ways to advocate for a better life for black folks. And so he's the, the mind and one of the, the, the major um, thought leaders. He's our intellectual leader when he and others around him create the SEAL Federal Credit Union, you know, which exists today on Spring Street. It is where I financed my first automobile. I was a college dropout for a while and was back home in Charleston and um there was no bank that would have ever loaned me any money to buy a car. I got my first car through the Black-owned CO Federal Credit Union, founded by people like Mr. Esau Jenkins. Right. Um, Mr. Jenkins and 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 his his um, comrades and colleagues, um, my father being one of them. But you know, there were so many other people from the islands. Uh, from downtown, from North Charleston, but they got together and it was through them and that thinking that um, the Sea Island Healthcare Center was created. One of the first almost completely black run healthcare agencies. You know, Mr. Esau understood the power of the vote and that's why he's known for voter registration. I say all of that to say, can you imagine me growing up in these times, Pat? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, these are people that are showing me by doing. They're not just talking about it. Right. They are showing. They're showing me. And that just has such an impact on the person that I 
hope that I became, you know? Yes. Let me say that that house on Ashley Avenue that my grandfather built, by the way, became a meeting place when NAACP, we're talking the, the 50s now, 40s and 50s, on into the 1960s. Um, this was not a popular organization. Right. And... Yeah, so um, we were, my father and, and, and his colleagues, That they are not well received in Charleston. Um, but I remember, um, this is Roy Wilkins coming from the National NAACP office. This is Thurgood Marshall staying with us at our house. This is Marguerite Belafonte. The, the then wife of, of Harry Belafonte, right. the actor. Yeah, you know, she was as much an activist as was he. And so she would come and stay with us. Um, Gloucester Current, um, uh, um, Matthew Perry from Columbia, the lawyer, um, uh, Constance Baker Motley, the NAACP attorney, um, who helped with the case that I, my name got identified with. Um, these are the kinds of folks that are coming in and out of our house. And so um, it is no wonder that you would be excited and, and educated by people who said, oh, we can make things change. Now, you know, this idea that, you know, no, there's nothing we can do. You know, that just was never around me. It was always, okay, here's the problem. Here's the challenge. Now, how are we going to organize our folks to yeah. stand up and, 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 and make change happen? Right. The solution. So with a background like that, Dr. Brown, I can only assume that's what led you to uh, study history in undergrad and to pursue and earn a PhD in history, U.S. history. Um, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, when you think about it. Okay. Um, Got to fill you in on the, the thing that probably identifies me in Charleston more than anything else. The sister next to me, her name is Minerva King. She is a, um, a nationally board certified storyteller. But my sister Minerva, immediately after the 1954 Supreme Court decision outlawed segregated schools, you know, Topeka, Kansas, yes. right? The 1954 decision that everybody, you know, remembers as being the end of segregated schools. Well, my sister was uh, um, selected by my parents, along with several other locals, to force South Carolina to follow the Supreme Court decision. Well, the case Minerva Brown versus School Board District 20 then was filed. This is 1955, mm -hmm. a year after um, Brown versus Board of Ed. My sister is the chief plaintiff, and then she becomes a senior in high school. And the local said, no, she is no longer eligible to transfer to an all-white local school. And so they attempt to toss out the case. That was happening all over the South, not just in South Carolina, but where those states did not want to comply with the Supreme Court decision. Um, they threw the cases out and said, she is no longer eligible. She's a senior. Find somebody else, and we have to start all over again. It was a, 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 a ploy that was used. My father used to refer to me as his ace up his sleeve. He was able to get somebody at the courthouse in downtown Charleston to switch Minerva's name and put Millicent 
So the case, the local case, became Millicent Brown et al., meaning and, and others, others, versus Charleston School Board District 20. That case stayed in my name, my name, for three additional years. Wow. And my point is, your listeners really need to understand that South Carolina took nine years to comply with the 1954 Supreme Court decision. Not only is that astounding, but it tells you how strong the resistance was. Now, at the time, the NAACP active all over the state of South Carolina was finding children like me all over. We had cases in Rock Hill, Greenville, Spartanburg, Columbia, Orangeburg, Beaufort. You know, there were cases and children ready to um, challenge these segregated schools. A decision was made that since the Charleston case was the earliest filed, the judges decided that when we hear the Charleston case, that will be the lead case for the state. And so in 1963, the 11 of us, the is in my name at all, but it means and others, there were 11 of us who in 1963 actually went into the Charleston schools. The judge who ruled, Judge uh, Robert Martin, who ruled, decided that since it was, I think, August when he made his decision, he said it would be too disruptive if people are scrambling all over the state. And so therefore he says, I will rule in favor of the plaintiffs, but only those 11 children can go into the schools this first year, 1963. And so that is why Charleston becomes the first city to have desegregated schools in compliance with the 1954 school case from Topeka, Kansas, and it's nine years later. The ruling was then that the following year, other districts can then um, uh, put forth their, their, um, their plaintiffs and can get into the schools. But Charleston has that um, designation as the first city in South Carolina to desegregate. Um, That story stuck with me because I knew, I I graduate, I'm, I'm one of the first, because I'm one of the oldest of the 11. And so I think I'm the first to graduate from Rivers High School. that had had that had been a um an all white school um i knew all of what i just shared with you and so i i had the a, a teacher in at rivers who taught me history and um he Sol, solomon brebart was his name and i loved the way he taught and you know it always comes down to that. You know, you get a teacher that, that excites you. Yes. And Mr. Brebart kind of taught me how you think historically. And so I graduated no having this love of history. I did not become a history major right away. Um, I had some other passions as well. And so I went another route. 
I first of all told my parents, not my parents had graduated from historically black colleges, my grandparents on both sides had graduated from historically black colleges, okay? But this is the 60s and we're fighting you know, to not be confined and told that we can only go here and we can only go there. So I'm a child of the 60s, and I tell my parents, I want to get the hell out of South Carolina. Wow. I don't want it. Oh, yeah. I don't want any part. I was not happy in high school. I not enjoyed my high school years the way I would have had I stayed at Burke. And I was reacting. I was reacting. And I said, nope, I... I um, I love South Carolina State and all these other schools. My sisters went to Bennett. One sister went to Lincoln in Missouri. You know, I have great and had great respect for black schools. But again, the time I'm living in, it was, uh-uh, I'm getting out of the South. And so I head to Boston. And I want to experience something different. My father had always said to us in our house, it was like a joke. He said, when people would come in talking about how wonderful it was up north and people would visit, um, maybe they were from Charleston and they come back home and they're living in Chicago or Detroit or New York usually. And they come and kind of talk about how bad we had it down here. And my father, Um, appreciated what they were saying, but he was a pretty sharp cookie. And he used to always say, the South is anything below Canada. And I didn't understand what he meant, but he, I just remembered that. So I go up to Boston thinking I'm going to go where people are free, you know, Mm -hmm. and while I enjoyed the years, a couple of years I spent in Boston, I had to say, you know something, my daddy was right. These folks up here are as bigoted, you know, there are um, all kinds of um, uh, exploits up here to keep black folks separate. You know, it, it, this this dream we had about up north was just not true. Right. And I got to see that. Yeah. So um, I don't regret having left. I enjoyed the exposure. It was different. But this is the mid 60s, late 60s. Um, I am reading. I am being exposed. I hook up with some black folks in Boston and I'm learning much more about Malcolm X. Um, I'm understanding more deeply that this struggle for black rights is not confined to the South. And so I insist, nope, I'm coming back home. And yes, I'm going to go to a black school, you know. And so I come back home and I still, you know, kind of unsure. And I go to a black school in Atlanta. I attend Spelman for a year. And I'm glad for that experience, but ooh, that was mind-boggling to well, me. That let was me, mind-boggling. Let me stop you right there. What was mind-boggling about it? It was mind-boggling because I left Emerson, the school up in Boston, because I felt they were not addressing the issues confronting Black people in America especially. Um, I just felt that they were doing their thing, but not talking to me. So I'm going to go to a black school and I fall into a situation where this is a historically black college that is also in denial. It is not supporting student protest. It is not supporting students who want them to change the way they are addressing black injustice because we wanted our black schools to take the lead. And so I then understand, oh my gosh, this is not just about white schools. 
turning a back. But even some of our, most of our historically black schools are not really engaging in the way I wanted to be engaged. Um, when we talk now, see, it's 2020 now. Right. When you go to Atlanta, when you go to Spelman, when you go to Morehouse or Clark, or even South Carolina State to a certain extent, um, you hear a different narrative. But we have to be able to critique and criticize our own institutions. And certainly back in the late 60s, early 70s, when I go back to school in Atlanta, um, I am aware that our black institutions are dependent on white philanthropy. We are not run by the black community. And so in many ways, we were um, silenced. And so the people who want to keep those schools going they have to be very careful. They cannot piss off white people. So they cannot be but so militant. And that was a very sad undertaking and understanding that I had to come to, that these pockets of militants trying to make America really battle white supremacy, our black schools were not taking up the mantle. And um, it was very disconcerting to me. And I dropped out of school for five years. I went a whole different route. I went, joined uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Mm -hmm. That passion that I have is very deep, but I can't do it in school. And so I become a community organizer in Atlanta and I work on a variety of issues housing, economic development, but then I go over to Mississippi and I live in Mississippi and I work with something called the Poor People's Corporation and I do community um, organizing there and um, economic development through SNCC, you know, I mean, it's like I, um, I'm looking for where can you be a community organizer how do you how do you find a group of people who are willing to challenge all that is wrong with america and i just got disillusioned with higher education and that's a very long answer to your original question but there are some years that go by and as i get older and hopefully mature a little, I did realize the importance for me of getting um, a more formal education. And so by the time I go back to college and I start attending, of all places, the College of Charleston, um, I then decide I have lived so many unique experiences. I have such curiosity and drive that we tell the story accurately that then at the College of Charleston, I become a history major and decide that that's a direction I really want to go in because I want to talk about what I encountered in Boston. I want to really understand what was going on at Spelman. I want to talk about what happened in Mississippi and in Georgia, you know? And so that's how I got on the trajectory of a career in history. Wow. I want to backtrack a little bit with you, Dr. Brown, in regard to your Rivers High School days. Can you tell us just a little bit about what was a, 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 a typical day for you um, as a black student, African-American student, going to a uh, what used to be a segregated white school? Here you are. Tell us a little bit about that experience. 
that experience changed over time. It started out year one, 1963, with um, two of us, Jacqueline Ford and myself, going to Rivers. Um, remember I mentioned that there were 11. Well, the 11 of us were scattered throughout the city of Charleston. Um, Reverend Glover's daughters, um, uh, um, Ovita and, and Reverend Ford's daughters, uh, Jackie and Gail, um, and, um, uh, Clarice Hines, they went to James Simmons, you know, in other words, I just want to make sure you understand, we weren't together as 11 children, because we were different ages and different grades. So Jackie Ford and I go to Rivers that first day. Um, she's in the eighth grade, I'm in the 10th. And so she's alone and I'm alone because we don't we don't see each other, we don't interact with each other. And so we're both there, but we're having our own unique experiences. The very first day, very little got done because there were bomb threats. And we go to school, we started school, and then there were bomb threats and everybody had to come out. So I remember very distinctly that I started off, and I think there's some psychiatrist that finally, you know, talk with, with me about this, but um, the idea that I felt guilty, you Why? know, I felt that the students were looking at me and, and jeering at me, and I'm sure they were doing the same to, to Jackie Ford, um, but after a while, this, the teachers are just, they're frustrated. They want to get started. And we can't because um, we have to go outside because of bomb threats. And I can distinctly remember, I'm guilty. It's like, if it weren't for me, we could start school. Wow. Stop, you know? stop right there. Yeah. Stop right there, Dr. Brown. That's heavy. I mean, you took on that yoke of guilt. Oh, honey, boy, did I take on guilt. Let me tell you about walking to the classroom the first day. I get taken to my homeroom class. Um, back in those days, um, students were assigned a homeroom teacher and a class. And then you went to your other classes, but you always were anchored in a homeroom class. Um, I was taken to my homeroom class and I meet my homeroom teacher. She's this very petite little white lady and she was so nervous. She was not unkind to me, but she was so nervous. She is like, she does not know what to do. She, she shows me my seat and then she starts, you know, going, I, I, and I watch her and I think, this lady is about to have a heart attack. Wow. She is so discombobulated. And I spent, I remember the rest of that day, the rest of that year, the rest of my three years worried about Miss Costin. Is this lady going to survive? It was like she was saying, why me? Why does I have to be the teacher with the first black child? It, you know, wow. she got over it after a while. You know, she, she really did get over it after a while. But the impact that I recall for me was I just saw that I was disrupting everybody and everything. That is so and heavy, I though. And I that for Dr. Brown, yeah. that, that seems that's just so heavy for a child, a, a near young adult um, to take on. That seems like a very heavy burden. Did you ever talk about well, it? Gets, with, it did, did you ever talk about more, it with your parents? more because, see, no, no, no. Okay. I, I wasn't going to worry my mother. Okay. Okay. <laughs> my mother was already worried enough about what was going on. So I, I clammed up. I didn't talk about school when I came home. Um, I wanted them to know, and check this out, I wanted them to know that I was up for the challenge. My father was very proud of me, my family, my community, but there was sort of this assumption that, 
oh, she can do it. Millicent's smart. She she can do it, you know. So I went to Rivers, and I've heard this from numerous other children who were the first to go into those settings. You know, we were representing all black people. Right. You know, so I couldn't fail. I couldn't fail. I had to, A, make good grades because they're judging all black people by me. Right. Um, um, even though I it was unfair. To, even though it was unfair. <laughs> oh, it was unfair. Yeah. But, you know, again, this is at a time when we're still trying to prove that we are human and we are capable and um, I just knew that I'd always been a good student. I came from a very fortunate background, you know. Mm-hmm. So what excuse would I have for not being a good um, student academically? Right. I thought about it often because when I didn't get top grades, I felt terrible, you know. And there were times when I didn't. I was never good in math. Still am not. And so my math grades were not all that good. And I just I just felt so guilty about that. Um, and it just went on and on. But I will say that what kept many of us going, certainly what kept me going, was um, I had a community that I was representing. So when the boys were ugly to me, when the girls called me names, when um, people threw stuff at us in the in the lunchroom, um, when they wouldn't walk near me in the hallways, um, um, they I could not let them know. Right. that it was bothering me. Right. And so yeah, it was just, you know, just be stoic and, um, and you know, and I'll be the first. Please believe me. I, I talk about this. I've taught this for years. I don't ever want folks to um, get too busy um, feeling sorry for me because there were so many students who had it so much worse, right. so much worse. Um, there were some physical attacks, but they were not as bad as what was going on in Alabama, you know, I, I mean, right. and, and in Virginia, you know, so I, I don't ever want to be seen as somebody who's begging for, um, so you can see I'm having trouble talking about this because I don't like being perceived as someone who's trying to get your sympathy. Right. And you, and, and I'm not, and I'm not taking what you're sharing in that manner, I'm just like in awe of just hearing you, you know, talk about what you had to go through, uh, not only the verbal abuse, but the physical abuse. What types of things were done physically? I know you said things were thrown at you all in the lunchroom, but did anyone ever like approach you one on one? I cannot remember. Well, one guy used to um, uh, throw spitballs at me or, or lunch cartons at my back. But, you know, again, I, I have no recollection of any physical abuse that, you know, that is worthy of, of, of mention. Um, one of the things that I am very, very committed to doing as I've done some writing about um, not only my experiences, but this period of American history, is let's be very careful, even in today's time, when we talk about um, school desegregation and what children went through, because too often we talk about the bombs and the horrible physical abuse. And I'm very quick to say, remember that psychological abuse can be every bit as devastating. Absolutely. So let's not, and I certainly am not accusing you of this, but I'm just saying, I'm always reminding folks, don't just want to hear about the dramatic because those of us who went through this experience, many of us do not even talk about it to this day, but it's in our psyche. But why do you think that is, though? Is it too painful to talk about or 
Why do you think that is? I, I think it varies from person to person, but in the many conversations I have had with people, I believe that you're right. You know, I think folks cope in different ways. Right. And so um, some of the boys, for example, their coping strategies tended to be more physical because if somebody messed with them, they would probably just go ahead and duke it out, you know? Um, Or they took out their, um, their challengers uh, on the basketball court or the football field, you see? Yes. And so sometimes I found that boys tended to deal with it in, in, in a different way. Um, girls just had a tendency to just kind of shut up and and take it. And sometimes I find that many of us said, okay, we'll get back at you. We'll get all A's, you know, we'll show you we're smart, you know, but it it varies. I don't want to say it was one way all the way for boys versus girls. I'm just saying people dealt with it differently. I felt, I've always believed from what I observed, um, even at Rivers, was a lot of times with boys, if you show some expertise in something that they respect, um, uh, they kind of bring you into the club. And so if if you were pretty good in band, or you were a good sports person, athlete, you know, all they want to know is whether you helped the team to win or not. Right. And so a lot of, so a lot of boys got embraced through, through that route, you know? Yes. Um, yes. And it seems like much hasn't changed. It's still the same way today, in my opinion. Exactly. 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 That was present even back then. Um, But I've talked to guys who they knew that. They knew that if they couldn't play ball, you know, nobody would talk to them. So what happens if you happen to be a non-athletic black kid? You know? Right. What do you do then? And so I think a lot of us just found our own coping mechanisms. Some just left. They just said, forget this. You know, I'm not going to spend my years of high school or whatever, you know, um, bothering. And so and some trying of them to fit left. in. Yeah. 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 Others adapted, you know, and went about their business. Um, people just had different coping skills. But again, my point is, let us never, as we talk about these difficult times, let us never try to um, teach these the these this era um only based on the 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 harsh obvious um remind people that psychological trauma lasts a lifetime i for one know of someone who was one of the first um in the charleston schools back in 63 and she will not talk about these experiences wow. she will not and um i've asked her to participate with me on programs like yours you know and um a few people will do it but um there are some that nope they don't ever want to revisit it it's too painful it's too painful to oh yeah um traumatized i mean and the, the sad part about it is it never really goes away you know it it affects certain well pretty much every aspect um of your life and you have to find a way to keep putting one foot in front of the other and putting it behind you but you never really put it behind you yeah yeah you just yeah. never and it manifests itself in different ways right. i remember i was doing a workshop once um with a group of school teachers um and um a member of that group raised the question he heard me talking about my experiences and we went you know they wanted to know more and then finally this man raised his his hand and said 
do you think that's why you've been divorced twice? <laughs> wow. And I said, you know, and I laughed because I said, you know something? I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe I carry some angst that made marriage problematic for me. I don't know that. Um, but I, I laugh about that question because it was in asking that question that I was reminded that we don't know how we become who we become and what difference it could have made. And um, was I such a warrior that um, I undermined um um, my, my, my marriages, you know, right. um, don't worry. I I've dealt with that since then, you know, I'm not going to take on responsibility for all of that, you of, know, of course, of course. <laughs> but they, they might've just been bad choices, you know, but I'm just saying that, um, tendency to blame myself. That is something that I have always had to be confronted with that. It was like, Oh my gosh, this is happening because I, I am to blame. Yeah, I've had to really spend some time working yeah. through that. Yeah, that, all, that's all my life. Yeah, that's that's very heavy, um, and it's it's and it's just so unfortunate that you know that's the first thing you go to. You know, if something fails, well, was it me? Yes. And I think that's just yeah. that's so. That's one of the tragedies from you know coming out of the um, the part of history that you you know endured as far as integrating the school. I just find that to be so sad. I mean, it's, it just seems like a lot, you know, uh, to experience. And then when you think about it, the first thing you think is it's me. And I just, I, I don't know, God bless you. Cause I just don't know. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot. But let me ask you a question. And, and we, and we know that we live in a society that puts that burden on women anyway, right. and always puts that burden on people of color, black folks, especially. So I just kind of had an extra dose, I'm saying, on top of what is already out there right. for, for self-blame. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question for you. What would you tell um, young people today, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, and all these other groups with millennials and, you know, they're just out there protesting and trying to, you know, get the message across. We are human. We are not inanimate. Um, what do you say? What words of hope or encouragement do you give to them? That absolutely they are doing and saying the right thing, first of all. And um, the, the, the agitation and the confrontation is as needed now as it was 400 years ago, 300, 200, 150, you know, that is what we must accept as what being black in America is all about. Um, I say to them and to anybody, freedom is not free. Right. And so anybody who and I'm not suggesting that I don't get um, discouraged and everything, too, about having to fight the same issues over and over again. But I am reminded that, you know, every generation is expected to take up this mantle and work for change. Things are not the same as they were 50 years ago. They are not. What we're trying to do is get at the deeply rooted foundations of the inequity. And back when I was a part of that school DSEG, we thought it was just being segregated. We thought that if we weren't together, that some I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. If we could get together in the same schoolrooms, in the same communities, then things would work out. Well, there's some truth to that, but we are understanding that, uh oh, that didn't solve the economic problems, you know? Right. And so now, so I say to the Black Lives Matter, um, folks and all the other activists that are going to be involved in this for a long time, 
um, we must just be wiser every generation. We must ask deeper questions about systemic causes and um, we must not be unwilling to look at the past and see, okay, we made progress in this, but w- what did we not tackle? You know, it's, right. we just got to be better critical thinkers and be prepared not to just keep repeating the tactics that were used in the past, but we have to make sure we're asking deeper questions sounder questions and we're not letting people just um as i say give us crumbs and act like they gave us a cake wow you know right right yeah yeah you you got to realize wait a minute i may be happy that there's going to be an african-american museum on the surface that sounds really all wonderful have you asked who's writing the narrative that will be inside that museum. Good question. Have you asked, have you asked who, whose idea was it to even have it? Was a museum something that we needed in Charleston more than maybe um, investing in an economic development program uh, for, for, for uh, the descendants of enslaved people? You know, who decided that that was the answer? You know, uh, um, um, what what is the purpose of it? Is it to bring more visitors and tourist dollars to Charleston? Well, then the question is, how is that in any way really uh, transforming the lives of Black folks in Charleston? If if the if the Chamber of Commerce still thinks it's okay to have only white businesses on King Street. And uh, all those tourists are gonna go to white owned restaurants when they visit the African American Museum. Then we haven't even challenged, wait a minute, wait a minute. These dollars aren't rolling into black pockets so that we can close the economic gap. That's right. You're gonna leave the African American Museum and go eat at Henry's or eat at some of the other white restaurants. Mm -hmm. You know, we need people asking deeper, more thoughtful questions and don't be happy. Ooh, we're going to have a black museum. Well, why did the planners of that museum reject the suggestions that there be a black restaurant built in the museum where money could then flow into black hands? You, you get my job. I get, I, yeah, I, I understand. You. Yeah, and so we as a community, whether we're activists, whether we're protesters, or whether we're just regular people supporting these things, we've got to learn how to ask deeper questions and expect more. And respect is not superficial. If you won't let my opinions come to the table and you won't wrestle with me about what is a good direction to go you only want people that agree with you at the table then you you're not showing any respect for black folks that's right that's such a solid point dr brown such a solid point. Well, it's one that is confronting us right as we speak, Pat. That's why I raise it, because I am really, I'm a part of a, of a group. Some of my, my ongoing activism is with a group that has been for 20 years challenging the planners of that museum. We are insisting that we do not want a museum that ties Black people to enslavement we want to tell the story of enslavement i mean that is not the question yes but we haven't challenged the fact that when people talk about africa they have no concept of the genius and brilliance that is our legacy and so we can't accept a museum that wants to start with the 1500s right why are we not 
acknowledging that when you talk about Africa, that we've got to do some unlearning. We've been teaching everybody, white, black, everybody. We've been teaching people badly. Yes. And we don't know of our genius and from whence it came. And so um, that kind of discussion and discourse has to go on when we decide whether we're going to support this museum or not. You know, wow, you have brought up so many good points, some things I did not even think about, but they're all valid points. What, I mean, what do we do? I mean, how do we address it? I mean, it's, this project is so huge and it's moving ahead full steam, but how can oh, yeah. we be heard, Dr. Brown? How can we be heard? We cannot go out there shucking and jiving. Okay. okay, I understand new technology to a, to a certain extent. I understand it, but we have to remember to remind people that you can't get your opinions in two or 10 minute spots on social media. You have to question the sources of your information you have to identify, and it takes a little effort, who are the groups that have a legacy of, of, of really examining? You know, um, does, does someone have a track record? Can they show you documentation that what they're saying is true? Um, you know, everybody can have an opinion, but everybody can't have a different set of facts. Right. You know, and we have to press that. We must say, fine, be mad. We, we should be angry. But um, how are the, what are the ways in which we use that anger? Do we know the groups? You know, some groups, some of us never heard of. Do you even know about the American Civil Liberties Union? Do you know that this is a group of people, predominantly white, but they are the ones that are suing in South Carolina such that um, uh, people um, are not incarcerated because they can't afford to post bond. You know, do mm -hmm. you know that there are groups that are actually working so that we've um, actually um, have changed the rules now that pregnant inmates are no longer going to be um, handcuffed? while they are giving birth right i mean you know do you know who's doing the work you know yeah so i, I i'm saying yes the, the 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 problems are immense there's no question and they will not be fixed quickly but there's ways we can contribute with our bodies our money our brains our energy you know but we've got to except the fact that you got to be on some solid ground. Pat, I tell everybody, there's so much that still needs to be read that was written years and years ago. Mm -hmm. I am rereading a book written by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it's called, Where Do We Go From Here? I have that on Chaos my nightstand. And I'm, yeah. Community. I'm rereading that now, too. And you see, and while it was written so very long ago, you, it, you would actually think it, it, that it was written yesterday. And it answers your question about what do we do. So I, I part of what I say is, Let's just remember that some of these answers don't take rocket science. Right. And black intellectuals, black thinkers, black leaders have been addressing these for um, a very long time. So let's not act as if, oh, we don't know what to do. Yeah. Because that's just not true. Right. But we've got to come up with some common understanding about what is the causes of this dilemma that we are in you know right and, and not fall for the not fall for the okie doke right and you know when people say oh i don't know what to do in reality they do but they're not ready to do it 
because yeah. in doing, you have to give up something. You have to give up, I don't know, um, some privilege. You have to give up something in order for this to be effective. And, um, and, 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 and learning to be self-sacrificing like Septima Clark, some of us are not going to get there. Okay. Right, right. But, but there are smaller sacrifices that we can, can make, you know, try going to the library and reading a book. <laughs> can you make that sacrifice right. you know and read what some of our strongest thought leaders were telling us us understand from the past as well as you know people like Tanahisi Coates you know and 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 um people like Isabel Wilkerson yes. whose new book cast yes. is out she's trying to make us understand yeah we talk about it from a racial perspective and that's important but folks we better understand that caste and class, economic class. We are oppressed by our color, but we are also oppressed by our economic class. And we got to understand how all of that works in, you know? Right. I know our time is about up now, but is there any other last question that you want me to address before I have to go? Uh, no, I am just so glad that um, we've had this opportunity to talk. And um, I just want you to just give us a gem. What do you want to see uh, for generations to come? What kind of world do you want to see? Doesn't have, it's not going to happen overnight, we know. But what, what do you want to see? I want to see a world that learns how to see the humanity in everybody and stop some of the prejudging. And that's not just the way white people might prejudge black folks. That's the way black folks prejudge each other, the way straight people prejudge um, 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 gay folks and rich and poor. I don't care how it is, you know. I want to see a world where we really learn to look at people as as individuals and act accordingly and act accordingly. Um, that's broad, I know, but but that's my biggest my biggest wish for the world. You know, I want fairness and justice, and I could I could have worded that differently, but. Those are just words. I think when I say I want a just world, I think it starts with, you know, how do I learn to look at others and just decide I'm going to treat you the way I want to be treated. That's beautiful. So beautiful. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, thank for, you for having me. Yes, just thank you for sharing and keep up the good work and keep encouraging us to do better. Well, you keep up your good work because it's very important. It's very vital. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week on She Speaks Too. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook at She Speaks Too. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode and leave us a review so we can continue to bring you fresh content. See you next week.